0: celebrity. Have you ever been out in public and come across somebody famous? If you have, I want to hear this story. We can't, you know, all share out loud, but like in the lobby later, tell me who you met. Tell me what it was like. The only time I've ever been around anybody famous was like in 2013 or so. We were living in Lakeland, Florida, and we had gone to eat at the Olive Garden, okay, for some never-ending soup salad and breadsticks. I'm telling you, like, that is the best deal anywhere. So we go to Olive Garden in Lakeland, Florida, central Florida, kind of the middle of nowhere really. And when we get seated, we just notice that there is a buzz in the restaurant, you know? There is like this weird energy that you don't normally experience at Olive Garden, okay? And so we're sitting around and we're like, what is going on? What is all this about? And it turns out that seated just on the other side of the dining room, very, very randomly eating his own plate of soup salad and breadsticks, was actor, comedian, and oh, by the way, Canadian, Seth Rogen. It was so bizarre. So weird. It turns out he had married a girl from our city and so they were back visiting family and stuff. And you know, everybody is just like, oh my gosh, he's a movie star. Can you believe he's here? This is so wild. We're 30 feet away and they're looking at him and all this stuff. And of course I'm sitting here thinking, look, celebrities are just normal people. So I walked over to his table and I'm like, what's up, Seth? No, I didn't do that at all. I didn't do that at all. In fact, I was just as awkward as everybody else. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a famous person. When celebrities show up, people get kind of weird. Now in Exodus chapter number 19, God himself shows up. And let me tell you, people get weird, okay? If we get weird around a movie star, you better believe if God ever showed up, we'd be super extra supernaturally weird. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. The Israelites find themselves in the presence of God. But here's the deal. God is so different from what they expect Him to be that they are overwhelmed and afraid and they choose not to stay in God's presence. In fact, they miss the opportunity to meet and speak with God face-to-face. Like we talked about last week, that's literally what it means to be in the presence of God, is to be face-to-face with God. And so in this second week of our series, Presence, in which we're talking about what it means to live in the presence of God, I wanna give you the bottom line up front. I want you to know like the big truth that I want you walking away remembering. I want to give it to you at the front of the sermon in case you fall asleep at some point in the middle, okay? The presence of God, will often manifest itself in places and ways we don't expect. Listen, if you're a Christian, you've been around the faith thing for a long time. You're like, yeah, I get God. I understand how he works. I know who he is. I know what he's like, and I can kind of predict him. No, you cannot. And this is an amazing example of just how unexpected and really wonderful and marvelous and, I don't know, different God is from what we tend to think. The presence of God will often manifest itself in places and ways that we are not expecting. So that means that if you and I ever want to be in the presence of God, We have to let it happen on his terms and not our terms, yeah? We have to let God be God. He's God, I'm not. That means I can't dictate terms to him. I can't tell him who he's supposed to be. I have to accept him for who he is, and that will help me to experience his presence in a real way. Listen, being in God's presence really does have the power to transform you forever, but that experience is going to be different than what you expect, and so if you don't recognize that ahead of time, when you get into that moment, you're like, oh, this is, what I, this is not what I was thinking it was going to be, and you'll miss the opportunity. Okay, so let me read the story. There's a good bit of scripture, but we're going to break it up this morning. In Exodus chapter number 19, we read this. Uh, we'll start in verse number one. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before the presence of God. So when this is happening, all right, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt. You might remember that from like, you know, the Prince of Egypt, or maybe you've read the Bible at some point. I don't know. Okay. But the whole story of the book of Exodus is how the Israelites had been enslaved by the Egyptians and God miraculously delivers them. We tend to think that it was Moses that set the people free, but it wasn't Moses. It was God. God used Moses. He raised him up, but it was actually actually God delivering his people. And so, you know, he sends all these plagues on Egypt and eventually the Pharaoh's like, get these people out of here. I don't want to deal with them anymore. And so they leave. And of course we read in the book of Exodus about how like he starts to have second thoughts and he's like, oh dang, there go all my slaves. That's my workforce. I need some people to build my pyramids. And so he sends his army after him to recapture them. And God miraculously delivers the Israelites by parting the Red Sea and allowing them to escape from the Egyptian army. And so we read that two months after, that event happened, the Israelites come to this mountain called Sinai. And when they get there, the scripture tells us that uh, they're going to stay at this camp for a year. They're going to camp around Mount Sinai for an entire year. And Moses goes up and he speaks with God. He appears uh, before God's presence. If you pay attention, we're not going to read all of it this morning, but if you pay attention to some of like the clues and the things that the scripture says, there's a lot of callbacks to how Adam and Eve spoke with God, Face to face, okay? So what we talked about last week, you're gonna see some of those same things repeating themselves today. So Moses goes up to talk with God. Verse three tells us. Verse three says, the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Jacob was like the patriarch, the great granddaddy of the Israelites Announce these to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the peoples of the earth for all the earth belongs to me. You will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Moses, this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now we're not gonna pause because we've got a little bit of story to get through here. We're not gonna take too long on this, but every time we see the gospel pattern in the scripture, I wanna stop and point it out. Okay, I want you to see how God has always related to people and worked with people throughout history in the same way. God's plan of salvation always follows this process. It starts with deliverance, then it moves on to obedience, and then it moves on to blessing. Okay, It always goes deliverance, obedience, and blessing. I want you to pay attention to what um, God reminds Moses of. He says, look what I did for you, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, this is poetic. There weren't actual eagles. This wasn't like from Lord of the Rings or anything like that. Okay, like This is poetic, but God is saying, like, I snatched you up and I pulled you away from the danger you were in. That is deliverance. God freed them. And God freed them without them doing anything. He didn't free them because they were good people or they were obedient or they were following all the rules. In fact, they didn't have any rules at this point. Like literally the 10 commandments had not even been given yet. And yet God still chose to deliver, to free, to save them. Then as a result of that deliverance, God calls them to obedience. He says, look, you've seen what I've done for you. If you'll just follow me, if you'll keep my word, you will see more blessings like the one you've already seen. So you see this cycle going on where God delivers freely. He calls us to follow him, to be obedient as a result of the good things he does for us. And then he promises, I'll just keep showering you with more and more blessings. Now, what happens particularly with religion, and when I say religion, I mean like all the world religions, including many forms of Christianity, is that we get this out of order. And we think that obedience comes first Then God delivers, and then there's more obedience, and then maybe there's some blessing on the back end. See, we think, okay, I need to do the right thing. I need to follow the rules. I need to be this perfect person so that God will save me and God will bless me. But again and again, I mean every single time you see this in the Scripture, deliverance comes freely from God. Then it moves on to obedience and finally blessing. So listen, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus offers to me and to you. Literally, he saves us from our sins. While we were still sinners, I didn't do anything to deserve it, and yet God loves me so much that he would save me. Then he calls me to follow him. Come and follow me, Jesus says. And if you will, you will see great, great miracles. I mean, every time we see this in the scripture, I just want us to pay attention to it and understand it because this is the foundation of our faith. When we come to church on Sunday morning, We're not coming to make God happy and to earn his blessing. When people serve on the dream team, they're not trying to prove to us or to God or anybody else that they're good people. And when we give financially, we do whatever, okay? It is not about earning God's favor. It is about responding to the favor of God that we already have. Listen, no matter who you are, you may be a religious person, you might not be a religious person. You might call yourself a Christian. You may say, I don't think I'm a Christian at all. In fact, I'm not even sure I would ever wanna be a Christian. I get it. You already have the favor of God. He already loves you. He's your creator. And that deliverance that he offers you, that leads to obedience. That leads to wanting to follow him and not the other way around. Now, basically, and, and the reason that we're, we're kind of highlighting this is because in this moment, God is reminding the Israelites of the blessings that he's given them, of his goodness to them. He wants them to remember, I am a good God. I have done good and great things for you. Why? Because in just a moment, you guys, they are going to doubt that God is good. They are going to doubt that he is good. Let's look on. Verse number seven. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people, and he told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Yeah, right. Let me tell you, they do not do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak to you. Okay up until this point, like going all the way back to their time as slaves in Egypt, Moses has been an intermediary between God and the people. He's been going back and forth. Hey folks, this is what God says. And then he goes to God. He's like, okay, God, this is what the people are saying. All right. He's going back and forth. He is speaking on God's behalf to people. In this moment, God says, you know what, Moses, I don't really need you. In fact, I'd like to talk to my people directly if that's okay with you. I'm going to go ahead and speak. They are going to hear me. And this is going to happen in such an undeniable way that they are going to follow your leadership from this point on. God is going to allow the Israelites to see, hear, and sense his presence. So this should go great, right? Like the people should be like, oh, there's God finally. And they're so happy and they live happily ever after, right? Nah, Nah, man, not at all. Look in verse number 16. Oh, this is so crazy. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, lightning flashed, And a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, but they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. God thundered his reply. You jump over into chapter number 20, and you read verses 18 to 19. Scripture says, When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, when they saw the flashes of lightning and smoke billowing from the mountains, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen. But don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. Now, look, I don't know what the Israelites were expecting when they went to meet God, okay? This was the God that had miraculously, just a few weeks before, he had miraculously delivered them from the most violent and largest army on earth, right? He had shown up in this huge, magnificent, powerful demonstration. And then they go to meet him, and it's almost like they thought the presence of God was going to manifest as a kitten or something, you know? I don't know what they were expecting, but what they got was totally different. What they got was not at all what they were looking for. When God shows up, it is huge. It's powerful. Honestly, it's even a little bit scary. Thunder and lightning and darkness and fire, smoke and trumpets and earthquakes accompany the presence of God. So the Israelites are so taken aback by who God really is in this moment that they refuse to enter his presence. Okay, They don't like God as he reveals himself. And so they back away and say, I'm not sure I want anything to do with him. When we talk about presence, when we talk about experiencing the presence of God, what we mean is a firsthand and immediate sense of the size, the character, and the attributes of God. That's what we mean. When we're defining presence, it is a firsthand, immediate sense of God's size, of his power, and his character as a being. If you find yourself in the presence of God, you are going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be like, whoa, I don't know what I was expecting, but it definitely wasn't this. Listen, when God's presence manifests itself, you will not feel warm and soft and fuzzy, okay? You're going to feel like small and like, oh my gosh, this is nothing like I anticipated you will encounter a God who is bigger than you could ever imagine, full of majesty and perfection and holiness and power. You're not going to feel all warm and fuzzy. You're going to feel like you got zapped with lightning. When you encounter God, it's not going to be like the you know a cute little kitten or something. You're going to feel like you're standing in front of a roaring lion. Can you imagine if a roaring lion was like six feet away, just bellowing? You'd be like, oh my goodness, all right? Listen. We have this picture of God, but when we see God reveal himself in the scripture, he often reveals himself. In fact, he always reveals himself in greater form than we could ever imagine. It is something that is awesome and overwhelming and something that makes you say, whoa, I don't even know if I could stay in this moment. Like, I don't even know if I deserve or I can be here. You will have a firsthand sense of his size, his character, and his power. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Dan, if that's true, I don't know if I really want to be in God's presence. Because that sounds kind of freaky, honestly. I don't know that I want that. But can I tell you something? You want a God who is this big and this awesome. You really do. Listen, when you get a cancer diagnosis, you want a God who is limitless in power. When your grandkids are wandering and they're making dumb decisions and you see them sabotaging themselves, you want a God who is everywhere present and not limited in space and time like you are. You want a God who will continue to chase them down and call them back to himself, not a God who's cute and cuddly and warm and fuzzy. When you see injustice in the world, you want a God who is so holy, who is so good that he has to set that right, that he will not tolerate racism or poverty or unjust wars or any of that stuff, that one day he's gonna set all that right. You want a God that's that big. You want a God that's that powerful. So you think to yourself, well, I don't know. I mean, that just all seems weird and scary and freaky. No, it's not. It is the best news you could ever have. In fact, it is the only God that is worth worshiping. You do not want a God who is tameable, explainable, or ignorable. You do not want a father in heaven who is tameable. Christians, you cannot tame God. You do not want a God who is explainable. Theologians in the church, you might be able to describe some of God, but your words cannot do him justice. And you don't want a God who's ignorable. If you're here, you're a seeker, you're just wondering, you're like, I don't know about all this stuff. God is not ignorable. I mean, he is awesome, he is powerful, and he wants to do incredible and awesome things in your life. Listen, we serve a God that we cannot contain And we serve a God that we cannot exaggerate. We serve a God we cannot contain. Can't describe him. Can't box him in. Cannot say, oh, this is who God is and this is how he works. He is always going to be bigger than what we think of him. And that means that you can never... Exaggerate him. You could never explain. You say, God is this loving. No, he's not. He is infinitely more loving than that. You say, My God is this holy. Yes, he is, but he's infinitely more holy than that. My God is everywhere. Yeah, he's everywhere, you guys. You cannot exaggerate how big and awesome and wonderful your God is. That should move us to worship. Like, seriously, I don't want a kitten for a God. I don't want a God that is tameable, explainable, or ignorable. I want a God that is so much bigger, so much other, so much beyond what I could ever put into words that when life falls apart and answers fail me and I'm abandoned by everybody, that I know I've still got a God in heaven who's bigger than all of it. The Israelites are discovering this. Jeremiah 32, 27, God says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? Now, look, it's because of this picture. Understand this, okay? God shows up, smoke, earthquake, trumpets, fire. It's because of the way that God is manifesting himself that he reminds the Israelites of his goodness. Remember what I did for you guys. Remember how I took you out of Egypt and I brought you into this promised land. He reminds them of his goodness because they're doubting his goodness. They see him in all of his greatness and they doubt him. In his goodness, they feel overwhelmed and afraid, and that causes them to back away from the presence of God. C.S. Lewis is an author. You, you might know him from some of the stuff he's written or the fact that I quote him every other service. And um, He perfectly captures this idea of the awesome and wonderful nature of our God in the Chronicles of Narnia, a little fairy tale that he wrote. Okay? You may have seen the movies. And in this story... We've got um, kids who are magically transported to the land of Narnia, okay? And when they get there, they find out that the land of Narnia is under the spell of a witch. And they hear rumors and legends of a lion named Aslan, who has the power to defeat the witch. And so they set off on this uh, this adventure, this mission, to go find the lion, who represents Jesus, by the way, who can defeat the witch that represents sin, and as they're getting ready to go, there's this exchange, this conversation that happens. I Just personally, I mean, I know the Bible is complete and perfect in its form, okay? All 66, everything that's supposed to be in there is in there. But if God allowed fairy tales in the Bible, I just believe this passage could have been included somewhere. Listen to this conversation that happens between one of the kids here. Oh, a great lion, said Susan? I thought that Aslan was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. You guys, God is not safe, but God is good. God is not explainable, but God is knowable. God is not controllable, but God is all power. To the Israelites, they found themselves so scared of God's greatness that they forgot God's goodness. These two qualities are present in God throughout the scripture. And if you want to experience his presence, then you have to accept him as he is in all of his greatness and in all of his goodness. You've got to recognize, appreciate, and accept each component of that. The Israelites got themselves in trouble because they experienced his greatness and forgot his goodness. They left off one of those attributes of God. And the truth is, we're not any different than they are, okay? There are people in the world today, and they will preach God's greatness, and they will leave out his goodness. These are the Christians who grab their bullhorn and they get their turn or burn, repent or go to hell signs and they go out on the street corner and they preach about a great God and they leave off the good God. They just ignore that side of him. And listen, there are plenty of Christians that will spend hours and hours and hours talking about the goodness of God and they'll totally ignore the greatness of God. And when they do that, they try to tame God down into something that's explainable, honestly something that's controllable. May we never, ever downplay the greatness of God, his size, his power, his majesty, his ability to completely overwhelm you and anything else on this earth if he so desires. But may we never forget his goodness, that he genuinely loves each and every one of us. And although he is all powerful, he is all good. Both of these qualities are true in our God. Here's what happens. And I have this conversation like all the time, you guys. This happens constantly with me. As a pastor, I'm talking to people about spiritual things and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, And people will say, well, let me tell you about the God that I believe in. I believe that God is, and then they tell me what they believe God is, okay? Or they say something like, I would never worship a God who, and then they fill in the blank with a bunch of different things. And the irony is like, I'll talk to this person and they'll say A, and then I'll talk to this person and they'll say B, and A and B are opposed to each other. And so it's like, well, which one of you is describing the real God here? Here's the crazy thing though, okay? I have heard these descriptions of God enough that I took a moment this morning to prepare a picture of the God that most people worship. I really have. And I want to show you the picture of the God that most people worship. I've actually got it right here. Most people, look, if you just, I'm serious now. If we define who God is, we're going to end up with a God who looks an awful lot like us. He's going to look like me. He's going to have my skin color. He is going to vote like me. He's part of my party, not your party, thank you very much. He's going to spend his money on the things that I would spend my money on. He is going to be mad about the things that I get mad about. See, if we define God, then we end up with a God who just looks an awful lot like us. But the world doesn't need a bigger version of Daniel. The world needs a bigger version of Jesus. The world needs a God who is bigger than me, who's bigger than our culture, who's bigger than whatever. We have to let God be God. We have to experience his greatness and his goodness in full measure. It's no wonder that most people never experience God's presence because when God shows up, they don't recognize him any more than the Israelites did. Because they have in there, this is who God is. I, I can define him. I can explain him. I can set the boundaries for him. And that's not how it works. To be in God's presence is to experience his greatness and his goodness in full measure. Now, there's this passage in the book of Hebrews. So Exodus is like the first part of the Bible. It's the Old Testament. It took place like 3,500 years ago, 4,000 years, a long time ago, okay? Then in the New Testament, a little bit after the time of Christ, so not quite 2,000 years ago, there's somebody who's writing. He takes this episode from Exodus 19 and 20, and he explains how it really does, it it displays both God's greatness and goodness for you. Okay, so I want to read this passage to you because it's so good. Hebrews chapter number two. 12 verses 18 to 29. It's a little bit lengthy, but that's okay. Stay with me. It's good. He says, and he's speaking to Christians here. He says, You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. So this is a direct connection, okay? He's saying, Remember that story from Exodus 19 and 20? I hope you do because we just read it 10 minutes ago, okay? He says, Remember that. You're not coming to a mountain in which God is revealing Himself. In fire, in earthquake, in smoke. He said, for they heard the awesome trumpet blast in a voice so terrible, they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. Uh, God had told him if an animal even touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that later he said, I was terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion. Now check this. God says the Israelites came to Sinai and they encountered a God who was great but they didn't have a sense of his goodness. He says, now you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You're like, he's talking about heaven someday. No, he's talking about a spiritual reality right now. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge of all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You come to Jesus. The one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people and the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the capital O one who is speaking. Talking about God. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the God who is speaking to you this morning. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Nearly every bit of my life can be shaken and reduced to nothing. Everything that I'm so confident in my home, my marriage, my family, my good looks, all of it, why are you laughing? Can all be shaken, can all be taken because it's earthly, it's temporary. The scripture says here that God might just shake the whole mountain, but if He shook your life in that way, what would be left? are things that are unshakable. What would be left are things that can see you through life's earthquakes and fires and the smoke that blocks your view and makes you feel scared and unworthy to be in God's presence. Verse 28, literally, what am I, absolute, like, top verse, five verses, favorite verses in the Bible. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe for our God is a devouring fire listen we have a God who is so great that we should feel hopeless in his presence like if I stood before God I wouldn't be like hey God what's up it's so good to finally meet you didn't we have a good life together I mean this is so cool I would be just like this. I'd be like, oh my gosh, you are so much bigger than I ever imagined. You're so much greater than my limited. I preached every single Sunday for like hopefully 40 or 50 years and I still didn't do you justice, God. In his presence, I should feel hopeless, inadequate, insignificant, tiny, just like a nothing. That's how I should feel because of the greatness of God. But because of the goodness of God, when I enter into his presence, I feel whole. I feel real in some way that I never was before. I feel loved and accepted and cared for because I have a God who is big enough to overcome anything life can throw at me and a God who is good enough to be there for me in every one of those moments. My friends, we have a God who is great. We have a God who is also good. And it is not until we embrace both aspects of the character and nature of God that we will ever experience his presence. So what I want us to do is I want us to pray and and we just want to confess, God, you're great and you're good. I'm accepting your greatness. I'm accepting your goodness. Some of you, you really need to cultivate a deeper sense of God's greatness. You've gotten too familiar, too comfortable. God, Jesus is my homeboy. He's my BFF. We're cool. I'll do what I want and it doesn't matter. That is not how God works. And some of you need to know that God deeply and desperately loves you. Like genuinely, truly loves you. He's not a taskmaster. He's not writing a bunch of rules and expecting you to follow them so that you could earn his love and prove that you deserve it. No. God is love. Deliver then obedience, followed by a lifetime of blessing. God, today I pray that we would see you as you really are. God, help me to get rid of the ideas of you that have come from the culture, that have come from false religion, that have come from the media, that have come from my own warped imagination. God, allow me to see you in all of your majesty, your beauty, your holiness. I pray that I would understand just how serious you are when you call me to be holy, just as you're holy. God, I pray that at the same time, in full measure, I would know and experience your goodness as well. That your love... And despite my flaws and failures, that, God, you deliver me day after day from the slavery of sin, just like you delivered the Israelites as well. So, God, may we have this full picture of who you are. May we be a church that never shies away from preaching either one of these truths about you. We have a great God. We have a good God. And today we worship you as both, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. (laughs)